you've got mail. <laughs> Do you remember that friendly welcome? AOL, America Online, was largely responsible for popularizing internet services such as email and chat rooms. What many, many millennials like me don't know is that broad access to the internet wasn't available to the general public until 1991. Previously, only people who were in certain universities and in the military could access the internet. So when the doors of the internet were unlocked, it only took a few years from no one knowing or caring about the internet to it becoming a commodity that was used across the nation. And AOL was the leader of the pack. It was the first internet company to go public and made some of the first efforts to make the internet more accessible and even more friendly. Given the rise of the commodity and the success of AOL, others wanted in on the game. Microsoft, an established giant of computers, was among this group interested in getting in on the online buzz. They approached AOL. They said, hey, let, I, we're going to buy you out, and we will partner with you. We'll give you our computers, and you'll give your internet service. Convinced they could make it on their own, AOL said thanks, but no thanks. They would now have to compete with Microsoft, who had the advantage of having their internet service automatically hooked up with every computer they sold. What was AOL to do now? At the most precarious point of the dot-com bubble, they bought Time Warner for $165 billion. This is the largest merger of corporations in United States history. And the merger seemed to make sense. You know, the internet nerd bully and the cable nerd bully joined forces to become this mega nerd bully that would dominate everyone. But according to AOL's CEO, Steve Case, 50% of all internet traffic went through AOL at the time. And buying Time Warner would allow them to expand their services seemingly exponentially. So what happened? What happened after this great big merger? Well, it was a disaster of epic proportions. That dot-com bubble, it burst. There were fights between the two companies. They couldn't make their ideas work. And more and more companies hopped on the internet provider train. So the value of AOL Time Warner's stock went from $226 billion to $20 billion in a matter of roughly two years. In the bigger story of Genesis so far, God has set up these kind of partnerships or mergers with his image bearers. These are known as covenants. So from the beginning, the result of our being made in God's image is a commission to a particular role in God's creation. And that role is ruling on God's behalf, representing him well. But these human partners, much like AOL and Time Warner, fail big time. And they fail again and again. Adam fails by acting independently of his creator, which throws all creation and his descendants into chaos. 
And it gets so bad that God actually has to intervene. And that's the flood. But even as the flood was God's judgment, it was also God continuing his promise to bring people back to himself, to make that merger good again. He keeps that promise going through Noah and his family. Noah being a kind of new Adam and a fresh start. But even with Noah and his family, the effects of sin remain. And we're into chaos all over again at the Tower of Babel. But out of that chaos, once again, God brings order and God brings hope. He makes another new start in a man called Abram. And Abram's family later called Israel. The promises of this agreement to Abram were huge, way bigger than the deal of AOL Time Warner. This is the promise that through Abram, God would bless all the nations and reverse those curses of sin caused by the first Adam. So today we're in Genesis chapters 15 to 17. And these promises are formalized they're formalized in a covenant. And what's becoming increasingly clear in Genesis, especially regarding the covenant with Abram, is that while God guarantees to bring about his promises, he also calls for an obedient and faithful partner, something that he has not had so far. And the problem is, like we saw last week, when Abram was in Egypt. And we're going to see again this week. Abram has some issues. He has some issues to work through. He is far from an impeccable partner. Far from an obedient partner. So, in these chapters, God commits himself more and more to Abram and his descendants. Yet sin remains. So in light of these realities, I think the main point of these chapters is that God is better at bringing about his promises than we are. He's smarter. He's wiser. He has more resources. He's 100% holy. He's more powerful. He's better at it. So we are to trust him. We are to wait on him. And we are to walk in his ways. So the sermon this morning is going to have three main parts corresponding to the three chapters we'll be covering, chapters 15, 16, and 17. So in cha from chapter 15, we'll look at what God gives Abram, the main application being to trust God. In chapter 16, we'll see what Abram and others give to God, the main application being to wait on God. And finally, in chapter 17, we'll see what God confirms to Abram, the main application being to walk before God. Okay, so if you're not there, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 15. Let's see what page we got on here. We got a page number in the Pew Bible. Go ahead and yell it out. 16. Thank you. All righty. Genesis chapter 15. As we read it, you'll see that the chapter kind of breaks down in two different parts. Okay, and those two parts go through the same cycle. In verses 1 to 6, God gives Abram the promise of seed or offspring. Verses 7 to 20, God gives Abram the promise of land. And we'll see how each of those cycles unfold, and we'll look at the big picture of what God gives Abram. 
and how it relates to us. Okay, that's kind of the lay of the land going forward, what God gives Abel. Okay, Genesis 15, beginning in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your your reward shall be very great. But Abram said said to God, O Lord God, what will you give for me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out, of, out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The first cycle, verses 1 to 6. God gives Abram the promise of offspring. Verse 1 refers back to the events of chapter 14. You remember what happened? Abram goes and saves his knucklehead nephew, Lot. Abram showed faith in rescuing his nephew, and he showed integrity by crediting God the victory afterwards. It's in that context that God begins this cycle by revealing himself and making promises. He assures Abram that he is his shield, his protection. It's meant to calm Abram's fears. Because another assault could have been coming from these rebellion-crushing kings. And so God tells Abram, fear not. I am your shield. I will protect you. 
God assures him even that Abraham rejected the spoils of a crooked king. God says, I will give you great reward. I can give you more than that. I can give you descendants, legacy, and most importantly, Abram has God himself. Well, this is how God begins. In verse 2, Abram complains and he questions God. It's going to be tough for him to have this promise of a great nation that's a blessing to all the nations if he doesn't even have one kid, if he doesn't even have one son. And we can see this response to Abram is kind of snarky. But in light of the surrounding verses, especially verse 6, Abram appears to ask this from faith. You see, having faith in God doesn't mean you never ask questions. It's more about the posture in which you ask those questions, the attitude in which you ask those questions. That attitude is, Lord, I believe. God, help my unbelief. What does God do? God answers Abram's question and confirms his promise in verses 4 to 6. Gives Abram a visible presentation of the word he has spoken. He shows him the stars. One of the drawbacks of living in the city is that you don't see stars. The light pollution, you can't see all the stars that light up the night sky. I wonder, though, even if we could see the stars, if we would slow down and look at the stars. You know, we were in, uh, I took a day trip yesterday to Niagara Falls. Three and a half hours, there and back, just went for a little bit. And everyone there, it is that they're viewing the whole thing through their phone, like the whole time. Yeah, on the Maid of the Mist, even. There's a point where it, you, are, you are getting so wet that you can't hold up a camera or a phone, and yet people are still trying to take pictures. It's like, put it down for a second. Exercise the discipline to be still before God's power in creation. And this is what God shows Abram. In the view of God's handiwork accompanied by God's promise, Abram believed the Lord. Verse 6. He had faith in, he trusted in, he depended on God's ability to carry out his promises. And God, in turn, counted it to him as righteousness. And more on that in a minute. But for now, know that this is the same model for our faith in Christ. So that's the first cycle. Second cycle, God gives Abram the promise of land. And again, he begins by revealing himself and making promises in verse 7. The basis of this promise, what makes it reliable, is God's proven faithfulness. See what God says? I am God who brought you out from Ur, who brought you out of paganism, who brought you out of sin. I am God who brought you as a Gentile, out to know me, the one true God. The basis of his promise is his past faithfulness. Again, Abram responds with a complaint and a question. In verse 8, how will he know that he's going to get this land? He's traveled hundreds of miles. He's been in a famine. He's fought wars with local tyrants. This promise seems no closer 
than the promise of a child. But remember, Abram believed God. So this is more like when Mary asked the angel Gabriel how she as a virgin would give birth to Jesus. Not like Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, who asked how his wife would give birth as an overflow of his doubt. Abram believed and questioned. And God again responds. He gives a visible presentation. So you look at verse 9. He instructs Abram to do something that just no bones about it is strange to us. Strange. Several different animals, and he cuts them in half. This is, it's a bloody scene. And, and Abram even has to protect these animals from predators. And before anything else happens, God tells Abram what, what his descendants are going to do. When they are going to inherit the land. When they are going to get the land. He says it's going to be 400 years. You're going to dwell in another country. You're going to be enslaved there. And then God would drive out the current inhabitants of Canaan. Not out of just aggression, but out of judgment for their sin. What, what God can, can reveal history like this? This is when Abram would get the land. And then something really profound happens. You know, companies throw around the word guarantee all the time. They like to slap a guarantee on the box. And they assure that their customers that, that they will follow through on whatever they're promising. But it's one thing when a guarantee comes in the fine print of an advertisement. It's another thing when a guarantee comes from the creator of the universe. How does God guarantee his promise to Abram? He swears by himself. God's presence is symbolized in verse 17 as a smoking firepot and a flaming torch. Keep in mind, if Moses is the author here, the first audience are those in the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt, then the pillar of smoke and fire would be familiar images here. This is God himself, and he walks in between these dead and bloody animals in order to communicate, if this doesn't happen, if this fails to happen, let me become like these. What we get when we zoom out to view this chapter as a whole is that God gives Abram a covenant. And that word for covenant, berit, has appeared several times so far in Genesis. There are lots of ways to define it. And basically, it's a commitment between two groups that aren't bound by natural ties. But now they are bound as tightly as possible. Think of marriage. Not family, but now you are bound as tightly as possible. And now covenants involve commitments from both sides. And so here, God is committing to Abraham, or to Abram at this point. And that commitment is formalized when God walks between these split-in-half animals. The promise depends on God and God alone. God guarantees it here. God's saying that he guarantees both sides of the covenant, and he's willing to put his life on the line for it. 
This is what God gives Abram. And so when Abram's descendants fail again and again, and even us through faith in Christ, we are Abram's offspring. God commits to paying the price for that failure. He takes that punishment on himself. How did he purchase the church, friends? How did he purchase the church? He purchased it with his own blood. He was pierced for our transgressions. Acts 20, Paul's talking to pastors from Ephesus. He's telling them the importance of caring for the flock of God, of which the Holy Spirit has made them overseers. He says, care for the church of God, which he has obtained with his own blood. So here, Genesis 15, God shows his heart in the gospel. He's holy and just so that there must be a punishment from sin, a punishment for breaking the commitments that God has called us to. But in love, the Father sent the Son to take this punishment for us. That God the Son took on human nature to live in our place, to die in our place. So friend, won't you respond like Abram? Believe God. Abram was not sinless, but God credited Abram righteousness based on his faith. That's a model for us. Paul writes that Abram believed because he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. For us, we believe God has done what he has promised in Christ. We believe in Christ, in Christ's sinless life, in Christ's death for our trespasses, in Christ's resurrection for our good standing before God. So the world would ask you many questions about ultimate purpose, about your meaning in life. They would ask, how are you a contributing member to society? How will you garner greater influence for yourself? How will you bring peace how will you maximize your comfort? The Bible forces us to ask this question. How will you, one who has sinned against a holy and just God, be counted as righteous before God? Friends, the answer is through faith in Jesus Christ. Through Christ, God gives us forgiveness he gives us righteousness. And what's more, in the future, he even gives us inheritance. So in that same passage, Romans 4, when Paul's talking about the connection between Christ and Abram, he's showing that us, even Abram, is going to have inheritance not just of the promised land here, but inheritance of the whole world. So what God gives to Abram, if we are in Christ, God gives to us. And he has made good on his guarantee by shedding his own blood. Friends, God is good at keeping his promises. That is what God gives to Abram. But what does Abram give to God? This is a momentous moment, right? God himself walking through, like, let me become dead if this doesn't happen. This would be memorable. But if what happened after God made his initial promises to Abram back in chapter 12 shows us anything, it shows that not all of life are these mountaintop experiences of joy in God, of joy and thrill in God. 
By the way, which is why it's dangerous to feel that you need a mountaintop experience of emotion in order to worship God. That's dangerous. Because life just doesn't work that way. You need to be faithful in the routine. You need to be faithful even in the valley. Anyway, this whole event comes after this great mountaintop, this great guarantee. You look at chapter 16, verse 3. Ten years go by. Ten years. Have you ever done a group project at school or at work? You may know where I'm going with this one. Group projects are a great opportunity for our own sanctification. What takes place at the beginning of the project is that, you know, all of your partners decide, hey, we are all going to pitch in. We are all going to do our share, no matter what. Time passes, deadline's way far off. All of a sudden, the deadline looms. You discover that no one else has done their work. Well, finally, you resign and just say, you know what, I'll just do it myself. It's been 10 years, 10 years. And Sarai, Abram's wife, assumes that God is not doing the work he promised to do. So she does it herself. Or at least devises a plan that she thinks will kind of nudge God along to keep his promises. You look at chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. What does Abram give God? Really, it's not just Abram. It's every person in this situation. What does every person in this situation give God? Disobedience on some level. Sarai doesn't trust God, forgets his promise, puts pressure on her husband to break their marriage bond. Kind of messed up. What's even more messed up is that Abram goes along with it. He too forgets God's promise and is careless and is passive. Hagar comes to their aid, and once she's pregnant, she treats Sarai with disdain. And then the sin doesn't go away. It's left unchecked. If we've learned anything in Genesis so far, when you leave sin unchecked, it only grows and multiplies and gets bigger. 
So Sarai shifts the blame to Abram. Abram basically shrugs his shoulders, does nothing to help his wife. Fallen far from such bravery when going to rescue Lot. And then Sarai turns from the victim to the victimizer in mistreating Hagar. It's a mess. This is a mess. But what would you do? You've waited for 10 years and there's pressure from your wife. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel like you've been waiting for God's purposes in your life for a long time. You feel like God is far off and uninvolved. First, uh, let me just say, it's so great that you're here. Like this is a good place to be. It's good to be around God's people. Merely to remember that you aren't alone. But second, so much of life is waiting. So much of life is waiting. I would argue the majority of life is waiting. Waiting on the next big thing. Waiting for something to go away. Waiting for people to change. Waiting for ourselves to change. Friends, sometimes there are just no shortcuts with our walk with God. We just have to wait on him. Abram and Sarai had been waiting for 10 years. But they act out of lack of faith and they disobey God. But just like God is never inactive, so is our waiting on him not an inactive action. This is a contradiction in terms. Waiting is an action. It's something we do. Waiting on the Lord is a fight to actively trust in God's goodness and God's promises. So you think of the example of David we read earlier. When David was still a kid, he was told he was going to be king. This random shepherd boy was going to be king. He may have grew up his whole life singing Simba's song. Oh, I just can't wait to be king. <laughs> Which is kind of messed up for Simba because... If you think about it, the only way Simba can be king is if his dad dies. Anyway, um, David grew up his whole life with this expectation. He knows he's going to be king. And then he witnesses how bad of a king that Saul is. He witnesses this a time and time again. And still to compound it even further, Saul literally hunts David to try to kill him. Now David finds Saul alone and he has this chance to end the threat to his own life and to take the throne that's promised to him. And even the friend that's with him, he's like, David, this is what you've been waiting for. But David says no. He knows it's not his place to kill Saul. Even in cutting his robe, David feels like he's gone too far. So what Abram shows in a negative example, David shows in a positive one. And our lives show all the time. Sometimes there's nothing we can do but to wait. However, we wait on a good God. On a God who fulfills his promises. On a God who did not spare his own son. 
and this son did not take shortcuts, but followed the Father's will completely and was steadfast to go to the cross. I don't know what you may be waiting on the Lord for today, but let God's character and promises made known in his word, made known in his gospel, fuel your trust in him so that you can wait on him. So you keep going in chapter 16. For all our sin, all our disobedience, impatience, and lack of faith, God shows grace. For those who feel all but forgotten, he shows grace. Hagar casts shadows on the woman Jesus met at the well in John 4. Both women had sinned. Both were outside the family of Abram. Yet both received God's grace and compassion. While Hagar didn't carry the child of promise, she carried Abram's child nonetheless. So when returning to Abram, God promised to bless her child's descendants. And Hagar knew God was gracious to her. She calls him, in verse 13, a God of seeing. A God of seeing. And friend, this God has not changed. This is the same God who sees all, including you. Find comfort in that. Such knowledge, David wrote, is too wonderful for me about God's care and knowledge of him. So see God's grace in knowing you and see God's grace in Christ. What God confirms to Abraham. What God confirms to Abraham. Just as Genesis 15 comes against the backdrop of Genesis 14, so does chapter 17 come against the backdrop of chapter 16. So Abram and Sarai took their own way. And what does God do? Amazingly enough, God shows grace. Fourteen years have gone by since chapter 15. When Abram and Sarai try to do it on their own, God shows up and says, No, I am God Almighty. God confirms his covenant to Abram and widens the scope. Abram is now called Abraham. In verse 4, because he will be the father of many nations. God is clear, though. The blessing of all the nations will come through Abraham and Sarah's offspring that will begin with a child born to them in a year's time. And when this finally clicks in Abraham's head, what does he do? Look at verse 17 of chapter 17. He laughs. Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael, Hagar's son, might live before you. It's as he's saying, God, God, you don't understand. Your plan can work. Okay, Your plan can work. But it can work through Ishmael. Mine and Sarah's body, they're as good as dead. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 4. Romans 4.19, Abram's body was as good as dead. But just as God gives new names to Abram and Sarai, Abraham and Sarah, 
he gives a new name for himself. God Almighty, El Shaddai, the God who gives life to the dead. Abraham is going to really know this. He's going to get absolute proof for this. All this time that's gone by has brought him to square with the fact that there is nothing he could do in his own power to bring life from him and his wife's bodies. It must be the power of El Shaddai. It must be God. Friends, this is the same God who will give life from Abraham's dead body. This is the same God who rose Jesus Christ's body from the dead. Only when we recognize that there is nothing in our own power to save ourselves will we see God's power to save in Christ. But this is not the end of the story for Abraham in chapter 17. Knowing God as almighty calls for our response of faith and obedience. God tells Abraham, walk before me, verse 1, and be blameless. Remember, it says God's starting afresh again. It's a new start. And Abram and his offspring will be representatives to the entire world. It's through them that he will bless the world. God's even going to put Abraham in a land that's like the main intersection between Europe and Asia and Africa. They're going to have a bunch of people walking through them and they're to see what God is like based on how they live. We are called Christ's ambassadors. We represent him. We are his people. By looking at us, the world should see Christ's character. Christian, let that inform more of how you make your decisions the attitudes you have, how you go about your relationships. You've been saved by God Almighty. Jesus died for your sins and rose again, and now that same power is living in you. Walk before him. I know it's not easy, but God gives grace to us to do this. Ask him for help. But thank God representing the world is not finally depend, dependent on us, representing him to the world. This doesn't lessen the necessity of obedience, but it gives us a more solid ground of hope. So remember that walking through the animals, Genesis 15, God guarantees his promises. That this covenant will happen. But fulfillment of the covenant means that both partners will be faithful. Both Partners will obey. But when looking at the whole Bible, complete obedience and faithfulness, it doesn't happen from humans. All are sinful. None seek after God. So complete obedience and faithfulness doesn't happen until God the Son becomes man and obeys where we didn't. And so, friends, then by faith, we are united with Christ, the one who obeyed in our place. Finally, God confirms to Abraham. God confirms his covenant by giving Abraham a sign. Like the rainbow with Noah, the sign for Abraham is circumcision. 
a symbol of being set apart to God. Circumcision showed who was in the community of the covenant. And so when we zoom out again on the whole story of the Bible, we see that Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham through whom the nations are blessed. And now the sign of being in the covenant community that he is at the head of is no longer circumcision, it's baptism. Just like physical circumcision didn't matter without a heart of faith, so baptism is only a sign that we live and walk by faith in God Almighty, in Christ who rose from the dead, in Christ who washed our sins away. So this partnership God initiates with us is fulfilled by Christ in our place. He lived in complete obedience. He died for the penalty of our breaking of the commitments God called us to. But praise God, through the ultimate risen seed of Abraham, both Jew and Gentile may wash away their sins, may walk in newness of life, may trust in God's good care for them by waiting on him and be included in God's people. This is what God has given to us, what God has confirmed to us. Let's pray. Lord, as the old hymn says, help us to ponder anew, afresh, what the Almighty can do. Lord, you are almighty. And more than just infinite power, you have infinite wisdom and goodness that you have brought about your promises and that you care for us now. Lord, would we trust in you? Would we wait on you? Would we respond to you in faith and walk before you in obedience? Praising you all along, that Christ obeyed in our place, that Christ died in our place. We thank you that even here, your covenant with Abraham points beyond Abraham to Abraham's offspring, Jesus, our Savior, our Lord. In him we live and breathe. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.